Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Over four long hot summers, riots had become a brutal fact of American life. Johnson looked helplessly on as more than 150 cities went up in flames. Detroit was the worst. 43 dead, 7,000 arrested, 1,300 buildings destroyed. Johnson dispatched Army paratroopers and prepared to send his own task force to investigate. As part of the task force, Roger Wilkins was there as the president issued his final instructions. He started in the low key. I don't want any bullets in those guns. You hear me? I don't want any bullets in those guns. You hear me, John? I don't want any bullets in those guns. I don't want it known that any one of my men shot a pregnant net. And he looked at me and his face got red. I was the only black in the room. Well, I don't, I did no bullets in the guns. But he was clearly embarrassed and everybody in the room was embarrassed. So then he told us to go home and pack and get an Air Force plane to go to Detroit. And as we were leaving, he called me and he said, come in here, Roger. And I went into his office with him. And he didn't say anything. I mean, I knew he wanted to say, I didn't mean to say nigger, but he meant to say nigger. And he, I knew he wanted to say, I apologize. He didn't know how to say it. And so he walked me over to the French doors that went out to the Rose Garden. And uh, it's the area where Eisenhower had, had his putting green. And he looked out, and he looked at me, and he looked down, looked out, looked down. There were pockmarks on the floor where Eisenhower's golf shoes had hit the floor. And he finally looked at me, and he looked at the floor, and he said, Look what that son of a bitch did to my floor. And then he patted me on the back and said, Have a nice trip. And that was his way of apologizing. He was very human, I thought. Good evening. My name is Marty Lasden, and I want to welcome you to our Legally Speaking series. Our sponsor this evening is the law firm of Couchette, Petrie, and McCarthy, and I want to uh, thank them for their continued support. I also want to thank the Bar Association of San Francisco, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and the California Minority Council Program for their help in putting this event together. Now, our guest this evening is a distinguished uh, uh, commentator and civil rights activist uh, who, at the uh, tender age of 33, uh, back when Lyndon Johnson was uh, president, uh, was the highest-ranking African-American uh, in the Justice Department. Uh, he went on to serve on the editorial board of the Washington Post, uh, where, in 1973, he won a Pulitzer for his coverage of the Watergate scandal, a, uh, a prize, by the way, which he shared with a couple of young reporters named Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, he's also written uh, a couple of uh, widely acclaimed books, uh, one of which is a, a memoir. And uh, he did uh, two documentaries, both of which look at issues related to uh, race and uh, poverty in America. And for more than 20 years, he was a professor of history and American culture at George Mason University. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Roger Wilkins. 
You're supposed to sit here. Welcome. Thank you. We just got this rug in. I hope it's, it's a, we added this uh, recently. I hope, you know, we spared no expense. <laughs> um, this clip that we uh, just showed. Could yeah. I say something? Yeah, go ahead. I am really moved this evening because um, two of my classmates from the University of Michigan Law School class of 1956, Norm Zilber and Tony Orser, whom I have not seen mm -hmm. since then, um, they had distinguished lives and they come here to see me and it moves me very much. Norm, Tony, thank you. This uh, clip that we just showed. Um, uh, it comes from a documentary about Lyndon Johnson uh, that was done uh, in the early 90s that was uh, produced by uh, PBS. And uh, at the risk of completely embarrassing you, uh, I, I do have to say that I thought of all the talking heads on that documentary, uh, you kind of stole the show. And I say that not just because... They had a lot of dumb people on that show. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I say that not just because you do a, a truly scary impression of Lyndon Johnson, uh, but, uh, and it's not just because of all these wonderful stories you have to tell, uh, but it's also because in the telling, uh, you convey this uh, profound ambivalence about Lyndon Johnson. Uh, you acknowledge that uh, he was probably the best civil rights president we ever had, uh, but you also say that... Uh, he frustrated you at times. He angered you at times. And in your memoir, you say that uh, by the time you left uh, government service, you uh, hated the man. You actually used that word. So my question is, uh, with the benefit of so many more years of hindsight, um, would you say Johnson did uh, more harm than good, more good than harm, or do you think it's still a little too close to call? Oh, I think... Uh well, we're now leaving out Vietnam, right? Well, <laughs> that really skews it, doesn't it? Well, my hatred, and I guess that's the right word, stems from two things, Vietnam and how tired you are at the end of a second term. Mm -hmm. You've given everything you have. There's nothing in those years. All the riots, all the deaths, some of the deaths of people who were friends of mine. Uh, you're just exhausted. Um, and the whole administration was exhausted. They shouldn't have second terms. I mean, it's just terrible. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I hated that war. And it was really hard to work for somebody who was pursuing a war and policies that you really disagreed with profoundly. And yet, on the other hand, um, had really done extraordinary things in the field of civil rights that, that the Kennedy brothers could not possibly have done. You worked for both 
Kennedy and Johnson. Uh, yes. Let me ask you uh, an unfair question, the first of several unfair questions I'm going to ask. But uh, let's say Kennedy and Johnson were running against each other. Knowing what you know about them, who would you have voted for? Teddy. I'm, I mean, no, 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 no that's unfair. <laughs> you, and, you and Teddy are good friends, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I think JFK versus uh, LBJ. Who, who, who? Linda Johnson. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Um, because the Kennedys were limited guys. They were. I think. I, I think John Kennedy was a fine man and a, and a good man, and um, and he. And he handled the Cuban Missile Crisis well, because we're not blown up. Mm -hmm. But he he didn't have any traction with the Congress, really. He didn't his congressional operation didn't work very well. Mm -hmm. um, and the Kennedys were really limited because they were they didn't know a lot about life. They were risk kids. Mm -hmm. Very rich kids, and they had lived very privileged lives. Of course, Johnson had hard scrabble. He had uh, known poor people, had known poor Hispanics and poor blacks. He had taught poor Hispanics. Um, um, he had lived through the, the um, depression. Worked for Roosevelt. Understood the power of government. To, improve people's yeah. lives. But for all the, the great civil rights legislation that Johnson championed, that war that you hated, uh, it cost more than 50,000 American lives and maybe a million Vietnamese lives. It, it destroyed his war on poverty and set the stage, did it not, for the right-wing backlash that uh, replaced the war on poverty with the war on crime and left many underclass communities across the country uh, as bad off, if not worse off, than they were before uh, the legislation, civil, the great civil rights legislation got passed. I think that the, um, I think that the Vietnam War um, was Kennedy's war. Uh huh. You don't believe that if Kennedy had lived, he would have had the common sense to get out before it tore the country apart? I don't think so. The, the, there was a there was a aura of toughness. And the, the, when, when I got to the administration, um, the, the question of the people would ask about everybody who was a candidate, is he tough enough? Well, it's true today, isn't it? Uh, isn't toughness No, no, no. no. That... There, there's, there's tough really meant, it meant Cold War tough. Mm -hmm. It meant, it meant big gorilla in the, in the and, it, and, the, and these people did it. These guys from Harvard, so, Bundy, McNamara, they, they were tough. Uh -huh. And Bobby was tough. 
Bobby was, and Bobby was the second most important man in the administration, and he was the president. They used to say he's the president's right. I used to say he's the president's right hand thug. He, he people were scared of Bobby, mm-hmm. um, and his father once said that Bobby's the one is I love the most. He hates like me. So Bobby was tough, and I don't. They had a they had a coup in Vietnam, and they started putting more. They they were the ones who escalated the troops. At first, no. Whether President Kennedy would have put as many troops in, mm-hmm. I don't know. So you think Robert McNamara is wrong when he suggests that Kennedy would have gotten us out of Vietnam? Well, he was wrong about a lot of things. So, <laughs> And all I can say is that inside the government, if you were against that war in the Kennedy time, you, you were derided as a cream puff and as a wuss. I mean, you know, it was not nice. Mm-hmm. And there really was this swagger. We're tough. And I don't know what these guys were tough about. Yeah. I don't think they, I never saw them in a street fight. <laughs> but, um, and Johnson had the same advisors, more or less. More or less, but he, he at least he had a plan. His plan didn't was was nutty, but he really thought if he could get Ho Chi Minh to the table, that they could solve the problem. Right, and offer him a great society program, maybe. Yeah, and he and you know either bomb him to the table or you sweet talk him to the table or something like. Yeah. But. At least there was an idea, and the idea was we can talk and we can put things. And yeah. it was really weird he, how profoundly he believed that. You know, I said at the outset, uh, I mentioned that you were uh, the highest-ranking African-American in the Justice Department. It also seems to me that you were the highest-ranking federal official ever to be physically threatened by law enforcement officers. And in fact, it happened in your memoir kind of three times that that happened. In Watts, that was the first time where you were pulled over by a crazy cop who actually pulled a gun on you. Tell that story. The president sent uh, Leroy Collins, who was the head of the conciliation service, to Watts. And he told Collins, don't tell anybody that you're there. This is secret. This is the president telling, it's a secret now. Don't you tell anybody. And you can't take anybody with you either. I don't want to have, you have a big entourage. You don't, you're not supposed to be visible. So he took his own assistant, who he justified to the president, and he took, a conciliator and me, and we were secret, and we were in a different hotel. Mm-hmm. So, and the, 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 his special assistant was a guy I liked very much, a guy named John Perry. So, at some point after we'd been there for five or six days, which felt in that situation had been there a hundred days, Collins all of a sudden says to us, you guys can go out to dinner. It was a Sunday night. 
and we were we were on Wilshire Boulevard in Commonwealth. It's way out of it's, and so we went out to dinner. A white guy and a black guy. And um, coming back, John was driving the car, and he was driving me nuts. He was driving so slowly. I said, "What is wrong with John? Why is he driving so slowly? I wish I could drive." But he was driving slowly, very carefully. And all of a sudden, I said, after I looked back, and I said, John, you know, I think a police car is trailing us. I said, I can't imagine why, considering how slowly you're driving. <laughs> so he says, well, why do you think they're cli-? I said, because every time you slow down, he slows down. And every time you don't make a green light, he doesn't make a green light. And he doesn't stop next to us, he stops behind us. I said, something's funny there. So we get down to the corner of, uh, that we want to, where our hotel is, and we make a left turn. And he, he put on his signal, I mean, he hadn't done anything wrong. And all of a sudden, as soon as we turned, the siren goes off and the lights start twirling. And I said, John, pull the car over really quickly. He said, what's going on? I said, I don't know, but something, and they want us. So, out of the car, they say, out of the car. And so we get out of the car, and when I get out of the car, there is one of these policemen is standing at the back fender facing me, He's got a shotgun in his hand. And he said, hands on top of the car. So I put my hands on top of the car. Spread your legs, he said. Spread my legs. Meanwhile, this other, the other cop has got John over on the other side of the car. And he has me spread my legs and he pats me down and then on the inside then on the inside of my legs he pats me down with the barrel of his gun and gives me a whack between the legs it was not pleasant um, and then he says show me your show me your driver's license I said I wasn't driving and so I give him my federal identification card, which has a picture of me. It has, it looks just like me because it was just taken recently. It has height and weight and uh, race all on it. And it says Department of Commerce, United States Department of Commerce. And it has date of birth, so it has everything. He said, I said your driver's license. I said, I wasn't driving. I said, this is the more accurate identification. And he says, I said, I want your driver's license. And at this point, the damn gun is shaking his hand. Well, I've never seen, I don't see many guns. It's not my lifetime. And all of a sudden, I see a guy with a gun who's hostile to me and his hands are shaking. And it was uh, frightening. So I show him my driver's license, and he takes it, and I am really 
frightened now because the guy is really in his greatest teeth and he's obviously in a rage. And I swear, I, I had not done anything mean to this guy. I hadn't called him any of the names that I thought up for him. Um, nothing. And I, except for when I said I wasn't driving, I was, my tone of voice wasn't there. Just at that time, his other guy starts laughing. Ha, 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 oh, Joe, ho, 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 God, have we made a mistake here. Oh, this is so funny. It wasn't funny. It wasn't funny at all. But the other guy had listened, and he found out that we really were feds and that they were in a world of trouble because... Well, if, thought, they, they thought you were Roy Wilkins, not Roger, Well, right? when they reported it, they called... John, John's name was not George, but he said... They, they put down on the report, it was George Ball, who was then Under Secretary of State, George Ball and Roy Wilkins. The end of the story is we had a friend who was very helpful to us, who was a police sergeant in the Los Angeles Police Department. And she told me when I told her about this, she said, oh, I've heard about that. She said, it was you. She said, boy, are you lucky. I said, why? She said, because that guy who had his gun on you shot and killed a looter three days ago. So he did what? Shot? I said, would the looter have a gun? No. Did the looter throw a rocket? No. The looter reached in, uh, broken glass, through broken glass, took out some merchandise, and started to run, and this guy shot and killed him. That's the end of that story. <laughs> I want to, you know, and, I, and you tell that story in your memoir. And uh, it's funny I didn't forget the story. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that comes across in your memoir in general, you're a guy who's been pretty tough on himself throughout his life. Uh, you know, uh, while you were working on the inside uh, in these prestigious uh, places, uh, blacks were, uh, were marching on in Alabama and Mississippi and risking their lives. And you at times uh, felt guilty about that working with these white guys all the time. You had uh, some difficulty maintaining, as you put it, a coherent sense of self. So I'm wondering, as unpleasant as that experience was, and you've had others like that, whether on some level it was satisfying to know that uh, apart from your work having uh, significance and importance, that there was an element of risk to it. Um. In retrospect, I guess I said, yeah, I did some things that that were risky. Um, uh, but at the time, the, the heroism of the young people, uh, particularly, but the old people like Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi and uh, Aaron Henry and many others, it just was so moving. You know, um, and, and you wanted to be part of that. Yeah, I really did. Um, I really did. And <clears throat> but I did understand that that it was really important 
for them, whether they were white or black, but the people who were putting their lives on the line in places like Alabama and Mississippi really needed to have people in Washington who understood them and understood their messages and who could... uh, uh, Work on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. So... But it was hard on you. Yes. Yeah. You, you wrote in your memoir at one point, you say, uh, uh, this I guess was when you were working for the Kennedys, uh, you said, what I didn't understand was that my particular adaptation to white power was the most grotesque of all. I dressed in Ivy League suits, shirts and ties. Simple straight white talk had become my native tongue. I had begun to know how white people operated in the world and had begun to emulate them. I had no aspirations that would have seemed foreign to my white contemporaries. I had abdicated my birthright and had become an ersatz white man. Pretty tough on yourself. I probably wrote that when I drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you, you write well when you're drunk. Uh, I, should, uh, I should drink more often. <laughs> I think that I think that, that you know, I, it, it's hard. I'm now judging. I'm, I'm trying to. At 77, I'm trying to figure out what I thought when I was 35. This is very hard. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there was a new black spirit in the land. Um, a, a spirit that threw off the cultural teaching of black people to believe that there was nothing we could do. We were, uh, we were too stupid um, and too inept to um, be the force of change for good in anything. And um, that was changing, and it was changing in large measure because of what the people in the South were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who went south to be with the people themselves. So, yeah, I really did want to do that and be that. And there was one other part of it. My most, the most important function I had was to bring a black perspective into rooms where there had never been black perspective before and where the perspective was really important for the shaping of the policies. And I knew that was important work, but I wasn't going to get killed. The sense of inferiority, though, that a lot of black people felt because it was driven into them by the white society, uh, you were someone that was never really burdened with that because you were born into something of an aristocracy. And what I mean by that is not that your family was wealthy, but that... Not that uh, it was wealthy, no. Yeah. (laughs) but that you were part of a very tiny number of, of black people born in this country in the early 1930s who expected to go to college, uh, who uh, uh, expected to do great things. Uh, your uncle was Roy Wilkins, the head of the NAACP. Uh, your mother became president of the national YWCA, and your father was a journalist. So, a pretty uh, brainy group of people that you were surrounded with who let you know from the very beginning that great things were expected of you. I love this letter that uh, 
your dad wrote to you. I wonder if you could do me a favor. And you were two years old. Your dad died when you were nine years old. And, uh, but when you were two years old, uh, your dad was uh, actually in a sanitarium. He, was, he had tuberculosis. And uh, he wrote you this letter on the occasion of your second birthday. And I was wondering if you could read it. I just think it's a wonderful letter. Dear Roger, let me congratulate you upon having reached your second birthday. <laughs> your, infant, your infancy is now past, and it is now that you should begin to turn your thoughts upon those achievements which are expected of a brilliant young gentleman well on his way to manhood. <laughs> During the next year, you should learn the alphabet. You should learn certain French and English idioms which are a part of every cultivated person's vocabulary. You should gain complete control of those natural functions which, uncontrolled, are a source of worry and embarrassment <laughs> to even the best of grandmothers. You should learn how to handle table silver so that you will be able to eat gracefully and conventionally. And you should learn the fundamental rules of social living, politeness, courtesy, consideration for others, and the rest. This should not be difficult for you. You have the best and most patient of mothers in your sterling grandmother and your excellent mother. Great things are expected of you. Never forget that. Love your father. Great letter. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the letter that my dad wrote me when I was 27. <laughs> uh, he said, uh, Dear son, I remember this vividly, stop being such a jackass, <laughs> and no, I will not lend you any more money. Love. He had a more laconic style than, than your dad did. Um, now, you were engaged in your uh, first civil rights movement, uh, uh, civil rights action, when you were three years old, one year later, uh, and you were with your grandmother. Uh, describe that. We lived in Kansas City, Missouri, and it was a segregated city. Um, uh, my father was away, uh, so my grandmother had to do, and my mother worked, so my grandmother had to do most of the chores. It's my mother's mother. And so one day we were downtown in a big department store, and um, I told my grandmother that uh, I had to go to the bathroom. So she asked the sales clerk where the ladies' room on this floor was. It was on the top floor of the store. So the clerk was very dismissive and said, we don't let coloreds in that place. We don't, we don't know. There's a, the coloreds place is in the basement. And by this time I was doing a little boy dance, you know. <laughs> and my grandmother said, can't you see? This little boy can't hold it all the way down to the basement. Well, that's where he has to go. So my grandmother said, that's all right. He'll just do it right here. And she bent over and started to unbutton my fly. Whereupon I was permitted <laughs> to integrate the ladies' room on the top floor 
That made the but, front page of the New York Times, that story, I bet. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but that was my grandmother. She was, she was tough. Now, your interest in history, of course, extends much further back than the civil rights period. Uh, you wrote a book uh, called Jefferson's Pillow, uh, The Founding Fathers and the Dilemma of Black Patriotism. And you point out, point out in that book that 20% uh, of George Washington's army consisted of black soldiers. And you suggest that that very well could have made the difference between victory or defeat for George Washington. Uh, and I don't doubt that, uh, but the question I have is, uh, were they serving on the right side? And I ask that because isn't it fairly clear that if uh, the British had won that war, uh, slavery would have been abolished in this country well before 1865? Well, if the Brits had won the war and the blacks had been on the Brits' side, Jackie Robinson would have played cricket. <laughs> it's hard to come back on that one. <laughs> I do think this. The, the question of uh, blacks in the war was a big one. Um, the governor of Virginia, uh, the, the royal governor of Virginia, uh, invited blacks to um, join the, 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 the Redcoats and with the promise of freedom at the end of the war. And a lot of them joined. And Washington, who I really admire very, very much, um, but this is one of the worst things, he, he went nuts when he found out that, that this was being done by the governor. And he had been sucking up the governor just before the revolution started, he'd been sucking up to the governor because he loved land. Mm -hmm. And he had some land out in the Appalachian Mountains or someplace, maybe in the Shenandoah Valley. But anyway, and he was, but they were owed to him for the French and Indian War, and he was trying to get the governor to give him his land. And he really had sucked up to him a lot. So now he gets word that the, that he, the governor is, is having these blacks into the army. And you know he called the governor? A traitor. Right. A traitor. A traitor to what? I mean, Washington was that moment the leading traitor because he was in charge of the armies. Right. The revolutionary armies. But he was, obviously he's a traitor to whiteness. Yeah. Now, as to the choices that black people made, I think if you're a slave and you want chaos and dismemberment to occur because that's the only way you can have any latitude. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that the slaves really, most of them really sought the opportunities um, that they saw in this this um, conflagration. But I also think that blacks were really uh, moved by 
the Declaration of Independence. Um, and they were drawn to it, and they talked about it during the time of the Revolution and afterwards in petitions to governors. Uh, but it wasn't, that declaration wasn't about them. But uh, that's certainly true. Uh, <laughs> but it was there. It was, yeah. all men are created equal. It was there in one of the founding documents, and they used it for all that they could use it for. Yeah. And, um, and but the British others, previous, others yeah. the ones who joined the Brits, they did, in fact, many of them left the country. That's where that, that is why there are black people in Canada. Right. Um, so, yes, they, they got their freedom. And, and blacks got what? Jackie Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been awfully good at cricket, though, I bet. Number 42 should have been playing baseball. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, you express a lot of admiration and empathy for these freedom-loving, slave-holding Virginians who were no doubt inspiring, no doubt brilliant. Uh, but when it came to the most important moral issue of their day, uh, weren't they a failure? Weren't they, by omission or commission, leaving us with a constitution uh, that virtually ensured the dominance of the slaveholder interest in this country for more than 60 years? I think that um, I think that it's very hard to um, make moral judgments on the basis of contemporary views about um, human behavior. Um, I used to think, and this was, uh, the reason I wrote that book was exactly that problem. Um, who were these guys? Mm -hmm. um, I am a, I'm really a patriot. I mean, I really care about this country. And um, I've worked hard to help make it better. Well, and you asked this question, who were these guys? Let's talk about Jefferson for, for well, a wait, second. Wait, so, yeah. my, but my point is yeah. that as I then look back at these guys, I want to know more about them. Yeah. Um, I wanted to know how they lived, how they thought, how they dealt with their slaves, how they saw the universe. And... I want people to understand that the poorest people, the poorest black people in America are not genetically inferior. Um, they don't grow up hoping to sleep with their cheeks on the sidewalk the way I saw a black man um, yesterday when I came in from the airport. Um, these people have, uh, are the products of a mm -hmm. culture and a time and place. Um, and if I want cultural understanding of them mm -hmm. so that we make different policies with respect to the poor in this country, 
Um, I at least give the same consideration to the people who founded this, this, this country. And these Virginians were born into a culture that was not only uh, was it a slave culture, it was a culture that, in, a, in an economy that couldn't function without slaves. Yeah. And the... Um, and, and, and they, they wrestled with it. They did make they they did make wrong decisions, and they did each one of these guys that I wrote about: uh, Mason, Washington, Jefferson, and Madison. Each one of them, in his lifetime, wrestled pretty hard with the issue, with the exception of Jefferson. Jefferson didn't. Every Jefferson got he I, slid I, around. I'm going to ask you about things. him specifically. Uh, and you admire him, you know, in certain well, ways. Well, right? I, 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 sure, but, the guy could write like a dream. Right. But, um, but, but he was, a, no, Jefferson is the one I like the least. Uh-huh. He's a bad guy. <laughs> but each of these people really did, um, they struggled with it. Even, even Jefferson struggled with it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't really say, and, you know, one of these days, somebody's going to come down and judge us. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to say, you, wrote, you, <laughs> you kept on driving those damn cars, yeah. and you destroyed the planet. Right. What are we going to say? You descri- I didn't mean to do it. I'm sorry. I thought <laughs> I was driving them. You, you describe yourself as enthusiastically patriotic. Yeah. Uh, does that mean that you uh, buy into the notion of American exceptionalism? And by that, I mean this notion that uh, by virtue of our history and our culture, we have a uniquely virtuous role to play in the world? Or do you believe, as I do, that that's utter nonsense? <laughs> Since you're the boss here, I believe it's you. No, no, you... <laughs> no I, I don't believe that at all. I believe that we're among the luckiest people in the world. Um, the Europeans got here, and except for the Native Americans, who were not a huge military force, it was an empty, rich place. And it was a place where people could come and restart their lives and work hard and make something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they made a powerful country. Well, I don't think that that makes us better than other that, people. That, that means we can't torture while the rest, everyone else can? I think we're lucky. I think, and I think we're lucky to be Americans. And I think we've done some wonderful things. I mean, I am hugely impressed by the, by the um, advances we've made in race relations during the course of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's just astonishing. Um, I, I can remember when I was a child, black people would talk about never going to Mississippi, never go to Georgia or South Carolina. You'll get killed. You can get killed. And if you go, for God's sakes, get yourself a local license plate. Don't dive down there with the northern plates because those sheriffs come and they put you in jail and then they kill you. 
and the, the discrimination that I've known in my own lifetime uh, was pretty ugly. Well, a lot of that has gone away, yeah. and we did it, and we did it on the basis of our Constitution and of trying to do right. Um, so I think we have, and I think the nation has done good things, and I think there have been some extraordinary people produced by this culture. Um, but no, I don't think we're, what's that, what's the phrase? Um, you put American exceptionalism? Or yeah, or, or, yeah, 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 I don't think that's warranted. Yeah. So with the election of uh, Barack Obama, have we gone uh, post-racial? And uh, what I mean by that is can we proudly say at this point that instead of race, it's gender, age, class, and, and uh, sexual orientation and good looks that divide us? You know, we've got to wait to see how Obama does. I mean, uh, he could fail. He could fail big time. And so what seemed so shining on November 4th to those of us who had supported uh, will not, not look so good. Um, but I do think that for this country um, to elect a black man shows, uh, it demonstrates uh, an ability of a culture to change really profound ways. And it doesn't mean, and, and I'd, I, if, you, if you'd asked me this 15 years ago, I'd say, you've got to be kidding. Well, even like five years ago, the idea that uh, we'd have a black president now would have been inconceivable to, uh, I would imagine, a majority of Americans, right? Right. Including me. Didn't always teach race classes, but sometimes I did. And I would talk to my students. And George Mason is a uh, second-tier public uh, university in Virginia. It's going to be first-tier one of these days because the money is flowing in its direction. But in any event, these were um, the point is these were ordinary kids. They were not you know, high-powered. And... I had one student who I just loved, he was a white kid, and he just was so smart, and he was so funny, and he was uh, absorbed stuff, and he would go and get other books and read. He just was the perfect student. And he took every course I taught. And he... So the last course he took was the race course. And so he came to see me just before he was about to graduate. And he got A-plus in every course I taught him. And uh, he said, well, this, this last course was really hard. It was really hard. I said, what are you talking about? It was hard. Your papers were fluent and wonderful. You were on the case. Your exams were terrific. What did he say? It was hard. I said, now, when I got you to read uh, Anna Karenina and ask what is in Tolstoy's soul, that was hard. But this is not hard. So... He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, that's not why it's hard. I said, well, why was it hard? 
he said, because I found out that my two heroes are racists. And I said, who are your two heroes? He said, my mother and my father. And I said, well, how do you mean they're racist? He said, every time I watch a football game, I can't watch football games with my father anymore. I said, because when, every time they're about to snap the ball, he says, I don't see why they always huddle up. I don't see, they don't have to huddle. They only got three plays, nigger go left, nigger go right, nigger go up the middle. So I said, well, what about your mother? And he said, you know, I used to like to do dishes with her. It was time to talk with her, you know. And I, but then I started listening to her, you know. And every time we do dishes, it's always them. They do this, and they do that, and they ruin everything, and they, 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 they. Mm-hmm. Well, his is the clearest evidence of the nature of the virulence that is still in the society system. And it's still there. And you know that there are people who believe that, uh, that Obama is just an uppity nigger. And they resent him. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so there are lots of twists and turns in this that, uh, that worry me. But we're not, we're not close to a pro, post-racial world. It's this, this anti-black thing is, is really deep in the spirits of, of the souls of lots of, lots of Americans. Mm-hmm. And you just don't wash it out. Let's take some questions from the audience. Uh, please step up to the mic if you have any. Um, any questions? Mr. Wilkins, you've talked about uh, pride in America and patriotism. I wonder if you can just give us an evaluation of Condoleezza Rice. This what? An evaluation, your opinion, your outlook on Condoleezza Rice and her career in the government. Um, I am not a Republican. No. (laughs) I am very sincerely not a Republican. Um... So, I don't, and I I thought the Bush administration was really pretty bad. And I think Condoleezza Rice was not equipped for the job she handled. Um, I think that she was just shoved around by Rumsfeld um, and Cheney when she was national security advisor. Um, and I did not see anything when she was secretary of state that led me to believe that she was a person of great significance. Um, but that's all. I mean, I don't, I just... She just did not, she just wasn't up to it in my view. Any more, any other questions? 
Hi. Um, I was wondering what, uh, if your opinion of your uncle had changed over the years, particularly um, when he had a sterling reputation, a national reputation, uh, initially uh, as the head of the NACP, and then by the end of the 60s, uh, some you know black people were calling him Uncle Tom for um, taking a stand against some of the more militant um, groups. And what, what, what were you thinking at that time when, when he was undergoing all that criticism? You know, what was your relationship with him like? I didn't hear everything you said, but I think I got most of it. Um, Roy was my uncle, and I loved him. Um, and he was especially important to me because we have a very small family. Um, my father had just two siblings, and um, um, there was a girl between... Um, Roy and my father, and she died when she was in college. So Roy was the only vestige of my father and my father's family. Um, and um, I loved him. Um, and I thought that he was very good for a long time, but he stayed too long. And... Um, I couldn't persuade him. Nobody could persuade him that it was time to go. Um, now, as to the young kids, uh, uh, the, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and so forth, saying he was stuffy and Uncle Tom and all that stuff, well, he had a different role than they had. And um, he made a lot of difference. Um, in, the, uh, in, in dealing with both the Congress and with, with Kennedy and Johnson. Um, so I would say, though he was not a perfect man, and he did some things I didn't agree with, um, but I thought, he was a, I thought he was an able, good guy. But I do think he stayed too long, and that was and that, that was a great disservice to the NACP. Let me ask you about another prominent black person that I suspect you have some reservations about, uh, Clarence Thomas. Reservations? <laughs> <laughs> uh, when he was uh, nominated to the Supreme Court by Bush Sr. in 91, uh, that nomination, of course, got into a little trouble. A young woman named Anita Hill came forward. Uh, with testimony that he had, that Thomas had sexually harassed her. Uh, you were actually, uh, they, uh, PBS made a documentary of uh, the controversy uh, as it affected the black community, and you were, appeared in that documentary, documentary, and we actually have a short clip of that. So why don't we run that? Can you tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidents. Pornography involving these women with large breasts and, and ha engaged in variety of sex. As a black person, uh, you couldn't help but, but sit there and watch that and feel. Uh, you couldn't help but, but, but be moved emotionally at the sight of two black people talking about sex and private relations and the whole bit of it before a panel of all white men. And I hate to go into this, but I want to go into it because I have to. And I know 
It's something that you wish you'd never heard at any time or place. But I think it's important that we go into it. And let me just do it this way. She said to the FBI that you told her about your sexual experiences and preferences, that you asked her what she liked. What did I think? Um, I thought, uh, ugh. I, 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 had no, I had no inkling of it prior to that time. And I thought, I don't want this guy on the court, but I don't want him defeated for this reason. I don't want to see a black person um, go through this. You know, I have a substantive question to ask, but, uh, you know, as I was watching that, uh, the, the question occurred to me, does Biden have more hair now than he did then? <laughs> just, just, a, just a thought that occurred to me. But the, uh, the narrator in that documentary uh, uh, made the point uh, near the end of the, the film that uh, this controversy was kind of like an inkblot test, that people who looked at it saw their own fears and frustrations reflected back at them. I, I'm wondering, as you watch that, that car crash unfold, what fears and frustrations were reflected back on you? Well, I thought that Bush Sr. was, uh, and I guess this is the, the fear, that I would like presidents, whether they're people who I agree with or don't agree with, to be honest and to really care deeply about the country and try to do the right thing. George Bush nominated this guy and he had him up there at Kenny Bunkport and he made two huge lies in one sentence. I made an exhaustive search across the country. This is the best man for the job and he is eminently qualified for that. Two big lies in one sentence. <laughs> And so uh, there's one thing that I felt that's just I wish presidents wouldn't lie to us. Uh, and that was such a just outrageous lie. I mean, this guy said he, you know, that he had never discussed Roe v. Wade with anybody. I mean, only guys who died who in law school at the time, they, I mean, come on. That was, that was disgusting. He doesn't belong on the court. He just doesn't belong but on the court. But you didn't want him driven out for... The reason well, that I, I, look Anita Hill was providing. I, I know Anita, and I I believe that she is a truthful person. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that she would have was. Well, she's a private person. She wouldn't have exposed herself to that cyclone that she got into. Um, just for attention or just to defeat this guy. Um, and I guess part of what I thought was be careful of what you say or see or what other people think you have seen because you don't ever want to be in that position that she was in. But the, I guess the fear I have is that black people still can be manipulated, some black people can still be manipulated and used by powerful white people 
and uh, it's been through from, I guess, the earliest slave days. Mm-hmm. And this guy was used, and it was very sad. A woman in this documentary expressed the sentiment that Anita Hill was a traitor to her community because she aired this dirty laundry in public. Um, did you see it at all that way? No. No, I, I admire Anita. Um, she, she came forward very reluctantly. Um, she didn't want to do it, but people pressed her, and there were people she respected, and there were people who really felt strongly about it, and so she listened to them, and she agreed that it was her duty to bring this forward. Um, I have no... I do not believe she lied. I've, I've talked to her about the thing. I just I think she was truthful to me. And I have subsequently heard from a number of people who have known Thomas that some of his behavior in life um, supports her assertion that he was deeply interested in pornography. So, um, now, did it occur to me that this was a really bad time for black people because these two black people were having this argument about that? Well, yeah, (laughs) it was not helpful. (laughs) But life is life. Speaking of laundry, uh, you know, the first 50 years of your life is pretty much an open book. It's, It's all in this book. And you tell some very personal things about yourself. Uh, I know, having read this book, that you've wrestled with bouts of depression at times. That at one point in your life, uh, you know, you had what people used to call a you know close to a nervous breakdown. I know about uh, some of the relationships you've had with various women. And and by the way, I want to say that everyone should read this book because the sex scenes are extraordinary. Um, but I'm wondering. Um, you know, do you have you ever had any second thoughts or regrets about telling so many personal things about yourself? No, the whole point of the book, <laughs> the whole point of the book was to um, examine um, the psychic life of a black person in a largely white world. And um, um, it seemed to me that um, it would add to the fund of understanding that people, white people, might have about black people who kept on getting put into these situations where the black person was the only black person around. And mm-hmm. um, what I didn't really expect, hadn't anticipated, was the reaction from a lot of black men. People would stop me in the subway or stop me in airports or... Um, and say and thank me uh, that they that it, that 
mirrored their experiences, that it made them feel better about themselves, um, to know that you can get through this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Fathers who said, uh, boy, this I've went, gone through this and I've wanted to talk to my son about it, and now I can have him read your book and we can have a conversation about it. So, no. And I realized if you're going to write that book, you're going to, you can't, you can't say, you can't just, because I really take the hide off of some white people in that book. Mm-hmm. And you can't be around taking the hide off of people and pretending that you're perfect. I'm not perfect. And I, the, the book wouldn't have been credible if I hadn't been clearly honest about who I was. Mm-hmm. And in the end, who the hell gives a diddle about how many marriages I've had? You know, my law school classmates, they still love me, I yeah. think. <laughs> I think you said uh, at one point uh, that uh, your enemies suspected worse, so you had nothing to lose. <laughs> well, I think that, yeah, I think that's right. I think, I think, I, there were a lot of people. There, there was one relationship with a very wealthy woman that I think people really thought that, um, that I was trying to get all her money. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who thought that. And I knew that wasn't true. Um, what I, and and I, just, I knew it wasn't true. And I, and, and I really loved that woman. She's a very smart, funny woman. But the problem was her money. <laughs> Uh-huh. And that and this woman, it was the mother of uh, 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 the woman who is the publisher of Na- the Nation magazine, right? Uh, yeah, the woman's Christina. name is Jean Vandenhuvel, and her daughter's name is Katrina Vandenhuvel. Yeah, just a little hint of the incredible juicy gossip you'll, but I you'll read in this. I, the, but the problem was, you know, she she had a she had a lifestyle. I couldn't I couldn't uh, support her lifestyle. And I couldn't live a life in which I was unable to provide uh, a substantial amount of uh, income. And so my wife had more money than I did. And I let her know on the first date that I had absolutely no problem with that. (laughs) Final question. Um, We do have a, a, a black president, which... As, as you acknowledge, as, you know, maybe four or five years ago would have been inconceivable to most Americans. Uh, but we also have many, many communities, underclass communities across America that have seen double-digit unemployment for decades. Uh, the incarceration rate for blacks is six times what it is for whites. And uh, half of uh, black children uh, live in single-family households. So when you look at the future through the prism of that extraordinary election in November, what do you see? I think that um, those problems that you just uh, noted are deep and searing and terrible American problems. 
And I don't think that most people think of them as deep and searing American problems. They think of them as black problems. And I don't think that any very substantial uh, progress will be made in dealing with these issues until a good chunk of the white population sees black people trying to deal with this, these problems in a serious way. And I think I'm seeing that now. The oldest black fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, has made this, it's this poverty and single parent and education, all that stuff, its number one focus. So I'm told has the National Urban League. Um, and there are two, a couple of famous guys who are putting on their own efforts. So one is uh, Harry Belafonte and the other is, uh, is Bill Cosby. So there's ferment mm-hmm. in the black community and there's, there's, there's awareness and this is where the focus is going to come from. And now there's one other thing that, I've, I've, that makes me very, very, well, on one side it makes me really happy and, but it gives me hope. The Obama campaign was like a magnet for really, really, really bright young people. And the, among them, there are lots of white kids and lots of Asian Americans, lots of Latinos. But for this purpose, the other thing is that there are lots of really, really able and impressive black youngsters who have not gone back to sit on their hands. A number of them are in the administration. Um, And I'm happy to say that one of those people is my 25-year-old daughter, who worked for, I don't know, 21 months in the campaign or something like that. And so I know some of these kids who she's met. and um, She was in, uh, I went to virtually every state she was in. She worked in South Carolina, Maryland, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And so I would go and see her and bring her home um, when she was through. And I met these young people, and she had them in for a party the other night into our apartment. And they really are impressive. And listening to them talk about the things that they hope to accomplish, um, it's terrific. And I don't think that it's just about um, what they're able to accomplish in the Obama administration, although I think they will get some things done. But these are all people um, in their 20s. They're going to be around a long time, and and they're going to have all kinds of careers, and it's going to be a new style of black engagement in public affairs, and I think it's going to be very much to the good. So I'm up. I'm, you know, I'm not saying when it's going to happen, these things are going to happen tomorrow, but I do see wheels beginning to grind that look like we're going to make some progress, real progress.
Roger Wilkins, this was a real treat. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.